Hi there, and so good to be here with you once again for the latest edition of Nightlight. Back with us on the program is poet, writer, and raconteur Peter Van Gorda. Peter's been my guest on the show a couple of times, reading us selections of his poems. On today's show, he's going to read excerpts from his books, and he'll send these books to any Nightlight listeners who would like copies. And I think after hearing these excerpts, you'll definitely want to take Peter up on his offer. The instrumental music on the show today is by Jeremy Spencer. I'm also going to play a couple of Jeremy's songs that you haven't heard on the show before, and that I think will fit in nicely with the program today. So, welcome once again to Nightlight, Peter Van Gorder. The show is yours. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. Well, hi, Simon. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to be back on your show again. I really appreciate it, and I hope that uh, it can be a blessing today. Uh, during the pandemic, I had a lot of chance to do a lot of writing, and... Thanks to my friend Tim, I was able to do some books that I'd like to give some readings from, some excerpts. I had a breakthrough recently when the voice spoke to me. Freely you have received, freely give. In wondering what I had to give, I looked over and saw that I had a chest of stories that were gathering dust. And the voice spoke again and said, Every writer that is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a man who brings out of his treasure both things new and old. Matthew 13, 51 and 52. As I'm not getting any younger and didn't want to be like the rich fool who is building bigger barns to store his grain, but passed away in the night. And then, whose shall these riches be? I thought it was like time to share what I have. And so, here it is. These books are free to download and share. And you can reach me at new2mailbox at yahoo.com if you'd like one. Okay, so here's a little uh, summary of the 11 different books and a short excerpt from each one. Singing of the Woods. This is a collection of meditations on trees and what they give to us and impact our lives. It seems that trees have a lot to show us if we're willing to listen. Trees that break the bonds of death through split tombs. Trees that are renewed in the face of an atomic blast. Trees that are shaped into instruments of resounding beauty that touch our soul. Trees that grow to defy the harsh desert environment. And many more true stories of transformation and revelation. So now I'd like to read a little riddle that I wrote. In the Middle Ages it was very common, like entertainment, to write riddles. And one monastery would send a riddle to another and they would try to guess it. So this is a riddle is goodness. We are patience personified. After 40 years of basking in forced Eden, we were plucked to serve you. Sucking from our earth mother's breast, 
We were nurtured for this moment. We are ready for you to use us. We are eager to become a tool, a chair, a table, a frame. For then we live. We await your pleasure. Do with us as you will. We are earth transformed, almost, yet not quite, flesh. Sap instead of blood transverses our veiny grain. As milk is not blood, but more noble than water, so are we. We are good for you. We wait for you. Master, shape us, caress us with your plane. Shape and cut us as you will. Let us feel your firm fingers. Form and fit us carefully to your will. Polish us with your oil cloth till we shine. Well have you chosen your profession, a carpenter of Galilee. Someday we will lift you up and like a magnet draw all men to you. We will hold the nails that will support you even as you die for the men who kill you. And you probably guessed that the answer to that riddle is wood. Run to Freedom. This is the true story of Josiah Henson, who was the inspiration for the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. It gives a first-hand account of what slavery was like and how his faith saved and led him every step of the way to the promised land, both physically and spiritually. I've tried to be faithful to Josiah's narrative, which was my primary source. At times, I included thoughts that he might have had that I received through prayer. It's my wish that this story will make people aware of their heritage and give an insight into the sources of racism that we still struggle with to overcome today. Chapter 2 Finding the Light A few miles from our plantation, there lived a baker by the name of John McKinney. He was a living sample of what a Christian should be like. He spoke out against slavery often and insisted on always paying laborers an honest wage for an honest day of labor. He would not hire slaves, for if he did, the wages would go to their masters and thus perpetrate the evil system that he so detested. John had a high reputation of being an honest, upright man. He would often minister the gospel to the surrounding area as preachers were scarce. One upcoming Sunday, he would be preaching only a few miles away from us. My mother suggested, you should get permission to hear him. Oh no, I protested. I've been beaten too many times to ask that again. No, Josiah, what kind of Christian are you going to be if you let a few beatings get in your way of doing what God wants in your life? It's part of what Jesus said, to take up your cross and follow him. I'm sorry, Mama, I just can't do it. She started to weep for me. That was something that I could not refuse. It hurt me more than any of Master Riley's beatings. 
All right, Mama. I will try again. Though I disliked the lash, I was always eager for adventure. Surprisingly, Mr. Riley agreed to my request. I'd been a good worker, and he knew that he owed me a lot. Such permission would seldom have been granted otherwise. But to remind me who my master was, he threatened, I'll let you go, Sai, this time. You'd better come straight back, or that'll be the last time, and I'll beat you till you're blue. Master Riley didn't call me Josiah. He thought that was a name for white people. Only, so he called me Sai. I hurried off to the service, just in case Master Riley would think of some work for me to do or change his mind. I didn't expect much from the meeting, as I had never heard a sermon before, except the ones my mother gave me. When I arrived at the meeting place, John was just beginning to speak. He quoted Hebrews 2, 9, that he, by the grace of God, should taste of death for every man. This was the first scripture I had ever heard that I knew was directly from the Bible. I never forgot that verse. It made its mark in my soul. In the book of Isaiah, it is said that the word of God never returns void, but rather it accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. This verse surely worked powerfully in my life. From that day on, that verse from Hebrews echoed in my soul, along with the sermon that was preached from it. I learned what Jesus is really like, not the cruel injustices of my master, but of the tender love he has for all mankind. I learned of his forgiving spirit and his compassion for the outcast and the despised for society. I could understand that. The Holy Spirit powerfully revealed Christ's cruel crucifixion and glorious ascension to me. Again and again, John McKinney repeated the words with great emphasis, for every man, for every man. For the first time I learned that the good news of salvation was not just for a select few. They were for the slave as well as the master, the poor as well as the rich. For the persecuted, the distressed, the heavy laden, the captive, he cared for me just as much as he cared for the rich. Imagine, he loved this poor, despised, abused creature, thought of by others as fit for nothing but endless toil and mental and physical cruelty. Oh, the wonder and joy I felt, knowing that I was loved. I would have happily died that moment. My soul sang, he loves me. He looks in compassion from heaven on me. He died to save my soul. He'll welcome me to the skies. I kept repeating these thoughts to myself. I was transported with delicious joy into another realm where I envisioned a glorious being of light and a cloud of splendor smiling at me. What a sharp contrast this was with the experience of the hatred and brutality of my earthly master. I basked in the sunshine of his love. I thought to myself, he'll be my dear refuge. He'll wipe away all tears from my eyes. Now I can bear all things. Nothing will seem hard after this. I felt sorry that Master Riley didn't know him. Sorry he lived such a coarse, wicked, and cruel life. I was so full of this divine love that my whole perspective on life changed. I loved my enemies and prayed for them that despitefully misused me. 
As I went home, I became so excited that I went off the road into the woods and prayed to God for light and for guidance. Although I knew so little of this new life, I know the Lord honored my heartfelt prayer. The events that unfolded my life over the years that followed bear witness that He not only heard my prayers, but it answered them marvelously beyond my wildest imagination. Though I bore immense pain and suffering, it all seems like nothing now that I am enjoying the splendors of heaven. From this moment of hearing John McKenney speak, I had a great hunger to learn more. He had shown me at last a chance to rise above my suffering. I could not hold it in, and I began to tell everyone I could of what I had experienced. I prayed with those who asked for it and shared the vision from the other world that I had seen. In the few years, I became a preacher, and I believe I was useful to some. The difference between what I learned from His Word of how men should treat each other in love and the hatred that I saw in daily reality was shown very clearly to me within a year of my conversion. The difference between what I learned from His Word of how men should treat each other in love and the hatred that I saw in daily reality was shown very clearly to me within a year of my conversion. Bringing you peace in the midst of the storm. You're listening to Nightlight. Patrick, love slave to Ireland. This is St. Patrick's exciting adventure story written in first person and present tense. I could really relate with the struggles that he had in his faith life. His birthday is celebrated in many parts of the world on March 17th by dressing in green or getting pinched, shamrocks, parades, feasting, and listening to traditional Irish music. But few know the story of his persistent faith that overcame many difficulties. After reading this book, perhaps you will be able to tell it to others. The apparition comes late one night after a day cluttered with a thousand routine details. Such a life-changing revelation could have come while I was sleeping, but it comes while I am awake. I'm usually too busy with my own plans and ideas in the day, but now I decide to be totally still and cease from my musing so that God's thoughts might penetrate my mundane world. A hole burns in the sky. Another dimension opens up, the spirit world. I see a man flying closer and closer, holding scrolls in his hand. Behind him, in the blue mist, follows a multitude of barbarians dressed in rough animal fur skins, wearing thick brass bracelets around their muscular arms. They watch in silence. I ask the man who leads them, Who are you? I am Victoricus, a man who was once like you. Why have you come to me? I have come with letters, many letters. Who are they from? I ask. Victoricus raises his finger and points to the letters he holds high in his other hand. As he said, each of these is a plea from a tribe that wishes for you to go to them. Behind me stand the spirits of their people, waiting, hoping that you will go to them and show them God's love. They yearn for their children to know the truth. 
Each of these people will someday be a great nation. Your choice will change the course of their history. Choose carefully. I cannot see the mass of faces distinctly at first because of the mist that envelops them, but I feel exactly what they are feeling. It's fear, a fear of dying, a fear deep down that all the things they believed in are false, fear of being lost in a barren wilderness forever. In the vision, I reach out and I take one of the letters. It's addressed to me. I read the title, The Voice of the Scotty. As they come out of the mist, I can see their faces more clearly. There is Milchu, the chief who owned me. I see his sons and daughter. More familiar faces step out of the mist. There's Captain McNally and his crew. Comoros, my slave master. Fiona, the girl I had hoped would be my wife. Then many more come closer to plead with me. Some I know and others I see for the first time. They say with one voice, We beg you, man of God, come and walk among us once more. The rest I understand not through spoken words, but by looking in their eyes and reading their thoughts. You understand us and know our language and our life. Forsake us not. We will be grateful for your love. We are waiting for you to show us an example of the love of your God. Surely you will not refuse us if we call for you. We wish that our children be set free. We are waiting and ready. Will you not come? As the voices end, I can read no more from the scroll. The vision fades as when the last ember of a flame burns out and only the smoke reminds us of the great fire it once was. The vision lingers in my thoughts for all that day. Yea, would even remain to the end of my days. Every detail is so clearly etched in my mind that I know it is a miracle from God. I've been given a gift of understanding, their heart cry. Yet the dream disturbs me. It deeply troubles me. The Scotty did not ask for baptism or preaching or that I would bring civilization or religion. They only asked that I would live among them as Christ's witness that I would be a sample of God's love to them. It's a vision that will always be as a bright sun, melting my doubts whenever I am tempted to leave my plow in a fallow field and walk away from them. Early the next morning, as a crimson sun posts its head above a muted violet sea into the sky, I mount a horse and ride and ride, trying to clear my troubled thoughts. I retrace the steps I'd taken, the field where I was abducted, the trail leading to the beach that I was dragged along, the shore where I was forced into the black ships. I look out across the sea as if looking for the faces of my dream. Only the relentless sound of the pounding surf answers me. I cry out to the Lord. Should I go back to Hibernia? Why did I escape and come all the way here to go all the way back again? To be made a slave again? Will I have to endure that life of bondage once more? Is that what you're asking of me? If I do go, how I get there? How I pay for a ship? And once there, how I live? How I avoid imprisonment and recapture? Will I be looked on as an invader or a preacher of a strange religion that seeks to destroy their gods? And what of those I have to leave behind? What of my parents? Could my mother stand losing me a second time? What of Lucella? Do I really want to leave her and my friends? The questions are out there like a letter posted. I wait for the reply. 
I hear only silence, but I know it will come. I dare not tell anyone yet of this mad scheme until I can garner more courage. I begin to take long walks. I'm hoping I will find some clue or maybe a sign to solve my dilemma. And I hope you're enjoying these colourful excerpts from the books of Peter Van Gorda. We'll pause now for a song and we'll stay in Ireland as Jeremy Spencer sings of the Rock of Dunamis. Hope they cannot desecrate 
Jeremy wrote that song after visiting the Rock of Dunamaze, which is in Lewis County in Ireland. And if you Google Rock of Dunamaze, which is what I just did, you can learn some very interesting Irish history. Well, back now to our guest on Nightlight, Peter Van Gorder, who's sharing excerpts from his books and writings. Feeling all right while listening to Nightlight. Christmas Collage, Volume 1. This is an assemblage of 14 astounding thoughts and stories for the Christmas season. What do trombone players, Johnny Appleseed, a trapped bank president, a broken sand clock, and a haunted painting have to do with Christmas? Find out in this eclectic volume of Christmas Joy. Now an excerpt from one of the stories, Christmas with Johnny. Pa pulled out his fiddle and began to play and croon out some delightful foot stamping music, and everyone began clapping along. Tom made more room by pushing the tables and chairs to the side, and Johnny asked Ma to dance. While the blizzard raged outside, inside it was cozy with the fire blazing and the air full of the happy strains of Pa's cheery music. Patience, Beth, and Tom swayed and clapped their hands as they watched Ma and Johnny dancing about the cabin, miraculously missing furniture and any other obstacles in the way. By the time Pa's repertoire was exhausted, the dancers were also. Everyone applauded, and Johnny announced, I guess it's my turn to give you some entertainment, if you like. Come on, gather round. The children eagerly pulled up the chairs round the fireplace where Johnny was seated in the rocking chair. Well, I'm just busting out with stories where I got more stories than a porcupine got quills, a bird feathers or a river fish. But you gotta find the right one. I figure stories are a bit like clothing. They gotta fit the person who's listening or it might feel a bit peculiar. Johnny pulled out the edges of his shirt to show how it fell to his knees and the children giggled at his funny expressions. Look at me if you want an illustration of ill-fitting clothing. So why don't you ask me some questions and the good Lord willing will spark a fire to blazing. The children nodded in agreement, but Johnny caught himself. Before we get a paddling, we best push our canoe into the water with prayer. Lord, quicken me the stories you want me to be telling. Bring them to life for these precious young uns. Amen. Beth was the first one to timidly ask, Oh, why do you plant apple trees? That's a mighty fine question to get me going, he said as he pulled some apple seeds from his bag. I got a vision that I'm working for. A vision? Patience asked. A picture inside your head and heart that's telling you what needs a doing, and that just eats you up until you're moving to do it, Johnny answered. The young prophet Jeremiah said it was like a fire in his bones that had to bust out and burn. You see, apples are wonderful creations because you do so many things with them, and I figure there's more yet to be revealed. You can slice them, chop them, stew them, brew them, juice them, pickle them, roast them, and much more. Some people are wondering about the secret of the universe when a marvel is sitting right smack dab before them just waiting to be discovered. Johnny reached into his bag and pulled out a handful of seeds for the children to look at. 
he held one between his fingers. Just plant this here seed in dark, rich soil. All it needs is rain and sun. And in a few years, you'll have a grand apple tree for generations to enjoy. If the Creator can work such a miracle through such a tiny seed, just think what miracles He can work in each of our lives if we let Him. We're all bit like seeds in a way. We can lie useless and never grow a bit. Or we can grow and sprout blossoms of delight, grow leaves of kindness and caring, and then give to the world apples of love and joy. From the seeds within us, we can plant countless seeds of peace and happiness that will continue to grow in the souls of others for years to come. The gift of an apple tree keeps on giving. And that, my friends, is why I plant apple trees. With this, Johnny put his precious seeds back into his bag and took a healthy swig of cider. But how do you know where to plant your trees? Tom asked. It's like you hear a still, small, heavenly voice inside you telling you which way to turn, which fork in the road or path in the forest to take, like an angel whispering in your ear. I get led to plant them near where the folks will benefit from and mind them. And when I've been obedient to the heavenly voice, I've never gone wrong. One time, I almost fell off a cliff, but I felt a nudge that kept me from falling. Maybe you're an angel too, said Patience Eyes Bright. Could have very well been, Johnny said. You're talking about hearing the heavenly voice, said Tom. Do you hear it out loud? Who is that speaking to you? Do you think angels are real? Whoa, that's a heap of questions, young fella. Let's see, where do I start? I know angels are real because I got two of them tramping around me at all times. Really? How do you know, Patience asked. I feel the presence with me. Few times I even got a glimpse of them, appearing majestic and radiant-like. One of them told me her name was Blossom. She's tall with flowing red hair and wears a blue robe clear as the sky on a spring night. Her companion is named Seed. She has blonde hair and a smile that could melt a snowdrift. I couldn't make out what she was wearing. It was a bit dazzling for my eyes, but I tell you it suited her just fine. Anyways, they were both mighty pretty and elegant and full of light, like a dawn coming up on a misty lake. I reckon the wild animals don't hurt me none, cause they must see them, and that's what calms them down. I know they wouldn't harm me for the world with angels like that walking with me. Johnny had propped his feet up near the fire, and Beth, who had been quiet up till now, said with a giggle, Mr. Johnny, you have funny feet. Ha, oh, these two friends, said Johnny, as he proudly twiddled his toes. Most folks ask me how I come I don't wear shoes. I tried wearing them, but my feet didn't take kindly to them. To tell you the truth, I like nothing between me and God's good earth. Shoes kind of get in the way of that. After all these years, my feet have become as tough as hardy as shoes. Why, one time, I was just strolling along when a venomous snake jumped out at me and sunk his fangs into my heel. I guess he didn't get a good look at my two angels I was telling you about. That snake hung in there with all his might till I shook him loose. But thank the Lord he took the sting right out of the snake's bite. Johnny pointed out the white scar that was on his heel. Another time, I used these here feet to silence a preacher who was getting a bit uppity and so long-winded. He was judgmental folk, which the good Lord never was. He was yelling and hollering like he was fighting bees, except there were no bees to be found. That preacher said, 
There ain't no one alive who lives like the early disciples. You frontier folk are losing your religion. Why, I hear tell some of you were starting to buy such vain things as calico for your dresses and store-bought tea. Is there a man alive today who is like the primitive Christians, traveling to heaven barefooted and clad in coarse raiment? He kept on asking and asking the, the same question till he got my guff up. So I just plunked these two beauties down on the tree stump, which he was hollering from, and I said, here's your primitive Christians. He was a bit embarrassed, so he called the meeting to a quick end. The cabin rang with laughter, and when it quieted down, Ma asked, Johnny, being as it's Christmas Eve, you reckon you might have a Christmas story for us? Let's see, said Johnny, as he ruffled his straggly beard. Oh, I know, just the one. When I'm listening to Nightlight. Nightlight. You're tuned in to Nightlight. Finding Eden, Volumes 1 and 2. These are some amazing stories from around the world of people from all walks of life who were transformed by the Spirit. These true tales are more fantastic at times than fiction. Stories from Iranian immigrants, former hippies, the ghost of Caravaggio, near-death experiences, and more. Things I Left Behind, How It Began Our stories of how we came to faith are powerful. These experiences show that miracles still happen today, and God works in our lives in very relevant and meaningful ways. Over the years, we've collected stories from Iranians, Afghanis, and people of other nationalities who have fled their countries for various reasons and have made their new home in Dresden, Germany. We decided to do a presentation at an event that was sponsored by the city for the annual Intercultural Days. In that presentation, we featured some of the stories of the refugees who have become Christians in our local fellowship. We have participated in this festival for the last four years. This year, our presentation was called Things I Left Behind. It was a multimedia theater performance that lasted 45 minutes and each story was about three to five minutes long. A suitcase was brought on the stage and opened. Various objects were pulled out of the suitcase. Each one was of something they had left behind and symbolized an event in their story. Each story was enacted through mime. A soundtrack of the person reading their story and appropriate music was played as slides were shown to illustrate the story being told. The purpose of this performance was to bring a better understanding of the background of the newcomers to Germany and to create understanding and empathy through friendships and positive faith. Here is one of the stories that were told. Spatula I was a tailor in Afghanistan. First, I was an apprentice, and then I became a tailor, and my teacher told me that I was now ready to sew any kind of clothes needed. I set up a tailoring shop. There was no electricity in my shop, and I had to use a generator. Every day, the Taliban forced everyone to stop work and go pray in the mosque. It was very hard. The Taliban were very bad. Everyone had to pray or die. I asked myself, what religion is this? 
Despite these problems, I decided I was ready to get married. My parents arranged a marriage with a beautiful girl, and we got married in April 2010. Her dowry price was 10,000 US dollars. I loved her very much and I was very happy. After we were married one day, she taught me how to cook different kinds of food. So when I see this spatula, I think of her. I'm a pretty good cook now, thanks to her. My wife said to me, come with me. I'm gonna show you something. I'm gonna cook and you can watch me because someday you might have to do it yourself if I'm not here. She made rice and lamb kebab. My father worked for the Americans on an army base. The Taliban came to him and asked, why are you working for the American dogs? And they threatened to kill him. They had an informer spy inside the base who was passing information about who was working at the base onto the Taliban. I went to my sister at the mosque and asked her, who would want to kill us? My sister told me, you better go because they might kill you too. The Taliban often killed the sons of people who cooperated with the Americans. I had to stop my work. I wondered what I should do next. My wife was pregnant, and one day on the way home from the hospital from getting a pregnancy checkup, they drove over an IED mine and it exploded, killing everyone in the car. My dad, mother, and pregnant wife. I lost four dear people in one day. My wife was six months pregnant with my son. My wife's name was Masume. My sister gave me money to leave the country because she feared for her life and said, you may be next. She was a big help to me. But when I became a Christian, she decided not to talk to me anymore and has cut off all communications with me. She said, why do you say God is a man? God doesn't have a nose or ears. I lost her phone number and all of my belongings on the boat coming here. I walked to Greece and the police put me in prison for three months. I applied for asylum status and was freed. I met an Afghani believer who told me about Jesus and God's love. I became a believer. I read the Bible and memorized verses every day. I was baptized and became a new person. My life is a transformation story. Now I have a new family. I thank God because Jesus is alive. I could answer my sister, you're right. God isn't a man with nose or ears. God is the spirit of love, but he sent Jesus to us so that we could see what God is like. Inspiring you to draw closer to God. You're listening to Nightlight. Tales of War and Peace. These are four spirit-filled stories, including two from World War II. Al the Ares and a spy story based on a dream and historical records from Liechtenstein, The Shoeshine Boy, and from the Spanish Civil War, The Magic Boots. A live correspondent at the opening of the restored Mostar Bridge in a piece called Building Bridges and a talk with the ghost of Wildham Randolph Hearst in the castle that hate built. The Magic Boots. The story begins during the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. General Franco led the right-wing nationalists against the Socialist Republic, which was the government in power at the time. 
After winning a complete victory in April 1939, Franco became the authoritarian leader of Spain until his death in 1975. The following story is fictional. It was inspired by a vivid dream of a dying gypsy. In it, I felt like I was Pedro himself and lived through what he saw and experienced. San Fernando, Southern Spain, 1937. Pedro ran a few steps down the cobblestone road, jumped over sandbags, and then ducked into a broken-down doorway. He hugged the dusty cement wall tightly. The sniper fire ceased for a moment. Quickly he turned and fired a few rounds from his rifle in the direction of the sniper and the tower who was shooting at him. He pulled back to the wall again, waited. The gunfire did not continue. Another went down, he thought. It was in this way that he and his company worked their way through the town of San Fernando. Soon this Pueblo would surrender, and then his unit would push on to Cadiz. Opposition was sparse now. Franco's forces were gaining ground due to the infighting among the various factions of their enemy, the Popular Front. Pedro pondered the war, the Stalinist fighting the Unionists, the Anarchist fighting the Loyalists, and each of them fighting one another. It has left them weakened. They are destroying themselves. Better for us, then. Soon this terrible war will be over. As Pedro stood in the entranceway, he heard the cry of what sounded like a child from behind him. He turned and cautiously approached the place where he heard the noise, all the while watching for sniper fire. He climbed over the splintered timbers and stone remains of what used to be a house. The crying made him think. The cry of that child is like Spain. The anguish of families being torn apart. Brother fighting brother. Friend fighting friend. My own brother joined the loyalist. I could have just shot at him for all I know. The soldiers I held in my arm as they died were somebody's friend or brother or son. I must remember their last words and requests. Give the message to one's mother, the rosary to Senor Gonzalez's lover, and the ring to Alfonso's wife. He entered the remains of the room where he had heard the cry. Amidst the bombed-out ruins lay a bearded man with dark olive skin. Pedro could tell from his clothes that he was a gypsy. Not more than 40 years old. What a shame, he thought. His limp body was huddled over the young boy, trapped beneath him. The man appeared to be dead, killed by shrapnel from a shell that had hit the house. He must have sheltered the child to save him from the bomb's blast. Pedro looked at the man's rough clothes and apron. I wonder who this man was and what was his profession. From all the pots and tools lying around, he might have been a brass craftsman. He ignored the child's cry for a moment as he rummaged through the man's pocket, hoping to find some money or valuables that he could pocket. All he could find was a small bill, which he put in his vest pocket. In another pocket, he found a faded photograph of the man playing guitar, surrounded by gypsy dancers. He turned the photograph over and read, Ode. He decided to keep it as a war souvenir. He looked down at the man's boots. I've never seen such extraordinary boots as these, he thought. The deep, rich, burgundy leather and the shine it seems unearthly. I must have these boots. The child's wailing was beginning to wear on his nerves, but he ignored it 
for his attention was focused entirely on having the boots for himself. He stretched out his hands to unlace them. As he touched the leather, he thought he heard singing, a single resonating note. It scared him so much that he jerked back his hand. The singing stopped. He looked around to see where the sound had come from. Everything was quiet except for the child's cries, which had turned into exasperated sobs. I must be imagining things. Perhaps it's this war. I've seen others go mad with visions, seeing the faces of those they had killed haunting them. Maybe I'm going crazy too. He tried to shake off these thoughts that buzzed around him like nagging flies. The incessant cry of the child brought him back to reality. He rolled the gypsy off to the boy and sat him up. There, there, little one, don't cry. The child would not be comforted. Here, eat some of this bread, it's fresh. He held it out. The boy grabbed it and tried to stuff the entire piece into his mouth at once, still sobbing. Pedro took out his canteen and gave the child a drink of water. The boy stopped crying. Obviously, he hasn't had anything to eat or drink for a long time. What's your name, boy? Pedro asked him several times, but the child was too scared and too hungry. Patting his head, Pedro said, I see you don't want to answer me. Very well. I don't blame you after all you've been through. Since you won't tell me your name, I shall have to find one for you. I think I'll name you Salvador. Yes, Salvador, in honor of your father who saved you from death. As the boy continued eating, Pedro went back to unlacing the man's boots. This time, he heard no singing. As he began to untie the laces of the first boots, he was shocked to feel the man's hand grab his arm tightly. For a moment, the gypsy's eyes opened wide. He gasped in a halting voice. The boots, they're, they're magic. The tight grasp on Pedro's arm loosened as the man slumped back. His life ebbed away as he breathed his last breath. His intense gaze remained until Pedro, having recovered from his fright, reached out and closed the dead man's open eyelids out of respect. One more book excerpt to come from Peter Van Goerder, but first, another song from Jeremy Spencer, who says this one was actually written by Mark Knopfler, who did it as a song, whereas I gave it a poetical spoken treatment. I recorded it about five years ago with my French team, featuring guitarist Rick Ravisat. Well, this is another historical song set in the time of Napoleon, and I guess you would categorize it as an anti-war song. It's called Done with Bonaparte. We've paid in hell since Moscow burned As Cossacks tore us piece by piece Our dead are strewn a hundred leagues Though death be a sweet release And our grand army is dressed in rags A frozen
clothes in a starving beggar band. Like rats, we'd steal each other's scraps and fall to fighting hand to hand. Save my soul from evil, Lord, heal the soldier's heart. I'll trust in thee to keep me, Lord, I'm done with Bonaparte. to dream Spanish skies Egyptian sands The world was ours we marched upon Our little corporal's command I lost an eye in Austerlitz The saber slash still gives me pain My soul from evil, Lord, heal this soldier's heart. I'll trust in thee to keep me, Lord. I'm done with bone apart. For her, she prays for me. A safe return to my Belle France. We prayed these wars would end all wars. In war, we know there's no romance. And I pray our child will never see a little corporal again. Toward a foreign shore and captivates the souls of men. Save my soul from evil, Lord, heal this soldier's heart. I'll trust in thee to keep me, Lord. I'm done with bone apart.
More Than Conquerors. These are stories on overcoming persecution. While some of these characters are fictional, the stories told are nonetheless true. Stories of power, protection of courage, of faith in the Lord, and his power to deliver them from the evils of their day and to help them stand strong against the gates of hell, which could not prevail against them, but which crumbled under the force of his power working through these weak vessels. As God's children of old stood up against the beast of their day, so shall we stand up against the Antichrist forces of these last days. And we too shall find the grace and strength we need to be more than conquerors and to be overcomers. This includes the story of Ketaro and the samurai, the hidden Christians of Japan in the mid-1600s, and the ego and the phoenix story about the early Christians during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. This is an excerpt from Ketaro and the Samurai. Introduction from a Samurai Warrior With this sword I killed and conquered many. How much mightier is the sword of the Spirit which gives life? This sword brings death in an instant, but the word gives life and peace. It works in people's lives continually. I was told to appear before you clad for battle, that you may know who I was. Shinojo Sakurai. I hate this, Yoroi. Armor. It is my past. To gain deliverance from my hell, I must tell my story and you must pray to release me. It's an honor to tell the truth. I am ashamed of my story, of what I have done, but I must tell it. I have been promised that the truth will set me free. Others will help to tell the story. I will not just tell the story from my point of view. For now, I am no longer the monster I was. The fire has purged me, the fire of the pain of having to see my evil deeds, of having to suffer the pain of those holy ones that I made to suffer. I am ready. The time has come. May the story bring deliverance, that I may right my wrongs and undo the damage I have done. May God and you have mercy on my soul. Kyushu, Japan, 1657. Ketaro lay on a grassy hill, overlooking the road that led from the village of Mogi that led to Nagasaki. He was proud to have been given the important job of lookout. Jesus is a good shepherd, he thought. Pastor told me about the angels that watch over us night and day. Now I am doing the same. I have a big responsibility for a 10-year-old boy. Pastor, the leader of the local Kakare Christians, had been like a father to Keitaro, since his natural father had died as a martyr in the persecution. His mother died of a sickness not long after. He had no brothers or sisters, so Pastor took him in as one of his own family. Pastor had given him some verses to memorize, one was a very long one that went something like, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman. He was still working on that one. Then there was a shorter one that often came to his mind. Watch and pray that you entered not into temptation. Temptations like sleeping while in guard duty, Pastor had once told him. He didn't have any problem with nodding off on guard duty, though. He had lots of energy. His temptation was boredom. 
It was much more fun to be sloshing up and down in the big sea trying to catch fish with the other men from the village, or trying to fly his new kite that he would enter in this year's kite contest, or carving his spinning top that he would give to his friend. But Kataro could do none of these right now, so he again tried to memorize the verse about the watchman. Then he took to counting the leaves on the tree, but had to give up when he ran out of numbers. His imagination never seemed to run out, though. The clouds were as the empty pages of a book that invited him to fill them with descriptions of his wildest conjuring. At sunset, the dragons, cranes, and tanukis, the Japanese raccoons, that he had pictured in the clouds transformed themselves into a distant land of the city of heaven that Pastor had told him about. I will travel there on my golden ship one day, maybe one like the Portuguese trading ship that I saw in pictures. But mine will be much finer. My ship will be of golden light and silken sails. I will fly through the clouds by magic. His thoughts were interrupted by another kind of cloud, one of dust. A troop of horses was coming toward the village. It took a few more minutes before he could recognize the banners that the horsemen carried. Those banners are from the Sakurai clan. Kataro's mind was racing. They are dressed in full battle array, which means they are coming on official business. But what kind of business? No good business, I'm sure. I must run and warn the village. The soldiers will be there soon. I must hurry. Kataro ran down the path so fast he could barely keep from stumbling but his bare feet skillfully missed the sharp rocks, for they knew the smoothest part of the well-worn trail that led home to his village. He ran into the village square to the great bell that was under a large ancient cherry tree where he had laughed and played at the village spring picnics, but he had no time for memories now. He was a man defending his village. He rang the bell by pulling back on the rope and letting it go. Three gongs, that means official visitors. You must hide, said the Otana, the Japanese village chief, to Pastor, who was busy writing a letter. Not this time. But you were target for the Shogun's wrath, since he made the decree banning his subjects from becoming Christians. To disobey means death. Our last daimyo often looked the other way and did not enforce the edict, but not Sakurai. Eighty times my eyes have seen the cherry tree bloom, my Lord has always protected me. True, the Otana said, his fretful spirit suddenly calmed by the simple and quiet faith of this old man. You have seen much adventure. How many times have you avoided capture? Too many to count, I think, Pastor said with a laugh. And one would think you've enjoyed the chase, too. I used to love the feel of my heart pounding fast, but now I'm tired. Perhaps we can find one of our friends who sails cargo ships up and down the coast. There are many who wish to establish trade again with the outside world and have heard the story of Jesus from other sailors. The next one is due to arrive next week. You could get a ride with them. I don't think so, but I will write a message to my friends in the north. Despite the decree, men like Pastor had cultivated a vast network of communication between the believers. One of their main lines of communication was the merchant ships which hopped the ports along the coast of Japan trading their goods. They would hide a message in a bale of rice or some other cargo. 
Some of the sailors were Christians who had met missionaries in their travels. At sea, they were free from the restraints of the tightly controlled villages. These sailors and merchants hoped for a day when free trade could again be established with the outside world. Japan's ports were closed to any foreign vessels. Only a tiny island off of Nagasaki named Dijima remained open, though only to Chinese and Dutch vessels. The Dutch had won this privilege by promising not to evangelize in any way. The two men were suddenly interrupted in their conversation by Kataro, running into the house. The daimyo is coming this way. He'll be here soon. He has at least 20 other men with him, shouted Kataro. Quick, everyone hide the papers. Like a well-oiled machine, everyone took up the cue and started to hide any documents that might be incriminating. The most important document was a list of pastor's contacts and locations of the believers. He opened the hidden compartment in the back of one of his candlesticks and placed the list inside. With a great flourish, the daimyo's retinue entered the village. Everyone was careful to avoid the warrior's gaze. A wrong look could provoke the samurai to anger, something that might easily cause them to lose their head. Call everyone to meet, Sakurai barked at the Otona. The bell was sounded again, and the men dutifully assembled. Many of the women hid in the shadows while others ran away, but the daimyo was not concerned with them today. It was the men he wanted to talk to. I have information that the leader of the forbidden sect of Christianity is hiding in this village. And the excerpts that Peter is reading from his various books really are cliffhangers, making you eager to know what happens next. And no worries, because Peter is happy to send you the PDFs of all the volumes that he's talked about on the show today. And these also, by the way, are beautifully illustrated. If you like copies, you can email Peter at newtomailbox at yahoo.com. And two is the number two. newtomailbox at yahoo.com. And if you missed hearing Nightlight Show's 247, Poems from a Raconteur, and 256, Crazy Waters, then you should definitely go back and listen to those on SoundCloud. Peter will also send you his three illustrated volumes of poetry if you also request those. Well, that's it for now. Thank you, Peter. And thanks so much, Jeremy, for the instrumentals and songs. And I look forward to being back again with you next time for another International Nightlight Show. Bye for now. 